Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. And today we're talking about mental health and the hidden threats facing journalists today as the media continues its coverage of the coronavirus pandemic. Joining me on Zoom is Hannah Storm, CEO of the Ethical Journalism Network and a media consultant specializing in journalism safety, gender, and mental health in the media. Through a mixture of experiences in her personal and professional life, Hannah has suffered with our own mental health. We're gonna hear more about that and her journey to recovery. What's more, she's turned these experiences into a rallying call for the media to pay closer attention to mental health wellbeing within its ranks and support those who are not okay. But that is not easy, when the mental health discussion is still something of a taboo subject in the media, and with the additional context of COVID-19, we are more isolated and under pressure than ever before. So coming up, we will hear about the different ways journalists are mentally affected by the pandemic, what stops them getting the support they need, what newsroom leaders can do to help them, and the opportunity we now have to reinvent the industry. But first, before we jump in, here's something for your diary. As well as great editorial content, journalism.co.uk provides media training for journalists, editors and other media professionals. On the 5th of October 2020, we are running a Storytelling and Engagement Techniques Masterclass led by David Atkinson, an established freelance journalist with bylines in The Telegraph, The Guardian and The Daily Mail. For this course and all the other great courses we run, head over to journalism.co.uk forward slash courses. Hannah, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you, Jacob? Yes, um, I've recently moved, so it's somewhat easier now. I've got a bit of a more spacious uh, working environment to, to deal with. Yeah, it has been a big challenge, and I'm sure it's something we'll discuss, the different ways we've had to navigate that kind of new world. Yeah, of course. And we're here, obviously, to talk about mental health of journalists in these makeshift newsrooms that we're, of course, dealing with. When we talk about mental health, Hannah, it's it's perhaps quite easy to be quite sweeping and vague about what we mean by mental health and, and some of its nuances. I think that would be quite a, a useful place to start and talk about the different ways that journalists can be affected by different mental health illnesses and touching on kind of why it's important to have clear terminology. Yeah, sure. I think what's been historically interesting is we have perhaps focused on terms such as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as being the thing that overridingly affects journalists and particularly journalists coming back from war zones. So there was a type of person who got PTSD. Now that is not necessarily the case. It is not hugely prevalent amongst journalism communities but we tend to I think perhaps fixate on a term of PTSD as being at the far end of the mental health spectrum. Whereas actually, I think one of the things that's becoming increasingly clear at the moment is that we need to find the language to address and to help people feel safe to talk about other elements of mental health, mental illness, mental well-being as well, such as anxiety such as stress such as depression 
things that are perhaps more likely to impact on them. Now, that's not to say that people won't get PTSD from their journalism experiences. Um, I've been recently diagnosed with PTSD and part of that is through my journalism experiences. But my PTSD is not the kind of war veteran correspondent PTSD either. So I think we do need to be kind of much more open to understanding the language as a person who's not a clinician, who's a journalist themselves, language can be complicated. I find the language complicated, but I think working in 10 years of journalism safety, I've been able to grasp the language. And that's helpful because we are storytellers ourselves, right? So we need to find the right words. I was thinking about the notion of burnout um, a little earlier on and how potentially the idea of burnout is not helpful. And the idea of burnout and this is just my opinion, perhaps infers that people can't cope and that it's almost their fault. Whereas if we talk about something more like moral injury, for instance, it's something that happens to somebody. It's something that's not necessarily their fault. This point about trying to find safe spaces to have more open discussions about the clear terminology is really important. I think that's just a fantastic point just to radically rethink how we see mental health illnesses, not as that person's fault but something that has happened to them I think this might be a good point to perhaps draw on your own experience here Hannah if you are of course comfortable and talk about why it is you care so much about this topic for me my experience you know crosses a large period of time I have been a journalist for 20 years I uh, around about Christmas time accepted a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder and PTSD um probably something called complex PTSD because the idea is that I had had a number of traumatic experiences in my personal and professional life and a lot of those threads were very difficult to unravel so it's not very easy to say A caused B or C caused D but for years and years and years I had been working in the space of journalism safety. I ran a charity called the International News Safety Institute which focused on journalism safety and it was a strange thing because I had this total and utter passion and almost obsession, I suppose, with trying to keep help people stay safe. That, I realise now, is part of my recovery. Now, I did it well. I know I did it well. I know I worked with some of the world's leading news organisations to promote safety, to passionately believe in safety, to write about safety and write about really important areas of safety, such as, I've touched on before, moral injury, such as the kidnapping of journalists such as gender-based safety but what I have realised in the last few months since I accepted the diagnosis of PTSD is that for a long time I felt a huge degree of shame around my experiences. I felt that somehow I was to blame for what had happened to me. I was to blame for sexual assaults related to my work as a journalist I was to blame for an abusive relationship that happened as a result of my journalism I was to blame for some of the things I saw and witnessed and my inability to be resilient after them partly not wanting to be able to talk about how I was superficially coping but actually internally not coping partly about some of the symptoms I had and partly also I think when you experience an abusive relationship and you're told time and time again that you are insane and, you know, a bad person, you don't realise that that is a kind of 
part of the abuse. You actually take it on yourself and think, oh gosh, maybe I am. When actually I was not to blame for what happened. And now I realise that I suffered again this injury. So if somebody had broken my leg, they would have hurt me. But I wasn't for a long time prepared to accept that was the same psychologically in many ways. For over the course of 10 years, I felt I got to this stage where I I have a degree of privilege as, as a woman who has managed to work at a reasonably high level of the industry for 20 years where I can talk about my experiences and I'm perhaps not as vulnerable as some people who are experiencing these mental illnesses and these mental health conditions. I kept silent about the abuse I experienced for many, many, many years, despite the fact that I had that element of privilege. Sometimes people will never be able to feel able to talk about their experiences. But I guess what I would like them to hear, if possible, is they're not alone. At whatever level you experience mental illness, it can be really isolating. It can be really flipping scary as well to deal with. Thank you for sharing that, Hannah. And how are you doing now, if I can ask? Listen, I mean, I'm I'm okay. You know, I have been in and out of therapy for a few years and I've now found a really fabulous therapist and I'm hugely fortunate to have done so after a long waiting period on the NHS, but have one on the NHS, which is great because it's free. What I've realised is that recovery is not linear. We assume that we go from A to B and A equals feeling awful and B equals feeling better. And actually that's not the case some days it is a question of you're feeling really bad and you have to figure out how to put one foot in front of the other and get through that day I think what I've learned now is I cling to the notion of there will be bad days and there'll be better days and there'll be days when I have to kind of really implement the coping strategies whether that be take some downtime from being connected, whether that be doing some exercise. I'm, you know, a very, very keen runner and that has been massively helpful to my mental health. I'm a very keen writer of fiction. And again, that's been helpful and creative nonfiction, which is like memoir. That's been helpful to my mental health too. And, or just taking time with my family and, and, and also learning to say no more, which sounds incredibly trite perhaps, but actually when you're able a bit more to set your parameters And to say to yourself, what's the worst that's going to happen if I say no in this instance? It can be really liberating. So yeah, I'm a lot better. Um, It's been a real relief being able to talk about it. There is still a degree of fear because there will still be some people who look at you and say, she's weak or he's weak. Um, And I think that, you know, when you've experienced a legacy of abuse, you feel that even more so. Not that I want to necessarily become a poster child for it, but... It's it's also allowed other people to say, oh, that's why Hannah's been so interested in this topic all these years. Um, and I've had, you know, an incredible reception to a piece I wrote for the Pointer um, Institute about PTSD and about my my experiences. But yeah, the days, some days are not as great as others. Um, but overall, I'm moving ahead in the right direction, supported by a good therapist, some good techniques, family, friends and colleagues who um, care for me and who I care for as well. Yeah, and I think the value, of course, of sharing your story is that those who perhaps feel the same way have a story that resonates with them and they can recognise that they're not alone in this. Thinking about journalists and how they're vulnerable today in the kind of unique circumstances of the coronavirus pandemic, how do you see them being quite vulnerable and susceptible to different forms of 
mental health illnesses. In this environment, we're really disconnected and yet at the same time hyper-connected. I'm hearing from a lot of people that they're just exhausted from too many Zoom calls or too many different calls on different platforms. Things are getting a little bit better because I think people are being able to recognise that a bit more and be able to say, actually, you know, we need to set some parameters around how many Zoom calls we take a day. I think that one of the other things I'm noticing is this sense of there's just this relentless negative news, okay? I mean, it's just all about sad and bad stuff and stuff that we don't necessarily have a grip on. You know, it's this invisible threat in many ways. And and so we have to be really careful because a lot of us have this significant fear of missing out, you know, significant FOMO. We want to be part of the news all the time. And that's not possible. One other thing that's perhaps worth touching on is I've spoken quite a lot throughout this period with with friends of mine who have been correspondents in crises. So be that in conflict, be that like me in environmental disasters after the earthquake in Haiti, um, be that in you know covering the Arab uprisings. And one of the things that's come up time and again is for those people who have been to places such as war zones, this is a very different kind of threat. Covering COVID is one which is impacting on everybody, but there is an element of it being an invisible threat that can be very destabilizing to your mental health as well. And also when you're working in an environment where you're living, sleeping, eating, working in the same environment, that can be really destabilizing too. We've seen that a lot historically in the impact on the mental health of journalists working in local environments so covering war zones within their local environments who are unable to escape from it and I'm just kind of interested in this notion that perhaps there's something similar happening there as well and I do think that over the next few months and few years we will begin to see better how COVID-19 has impacted on the mental health of of the media. Taking one of those for instance uh, the impact of um, reporting this very traumatic and perhaps local uh, news story and the consequences of that. When we begin to frame that as an injury uh, and framing that as um, the impact of that not being our fault, what difference does that make? Um, A few years ago, I wrote a study with um, somebody called Professor Anthony Feinstein, who's done huge amounts of work at the intersection of, of media and mental health. And the title was called The Emotional Toll on Journalists Covering the Refugee Crisis, a very long title, but it was, it was a, study we did with the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism and it touched on this notion of moral injury. We all have these innate moral values and um, if as journalists we're forced to witness or take part in things that go against those moral values it can be really unsettling, it can really destabilise us and it can lead to something that people have often called a bruise on the soul. It's a sense of shame and guilt Now, I think this is something similar to what we're talking about here, because in that study, what we found was it was people who were local to Greece, for instance, because a lot of the reporting on the refugee crisis took place in Lesbos. And it was Greek journalists who were covering things on their back doorstep who were finding themselves this sense of shame and guilt. And that can be really emotionally distressing. There is a sense that perhaps moral injury is going to be something that we see and hear a lot more of in the legacy of COVID reporting and that point about it being an injury is really really 
important as well. And there are some things we can do to help manage against that, which are also really, really key. And one of them is setting parameters around our roles and responsibilities and understanding the job we have as a journalist, where it begins and where it ends. And also recognising that our job's really important and actually being able to feel validated for doing that job is is really important too. Moral injury is not a mental illness, but if left unchecked, it can deteriorate and people can experience, as I said, acute emotional stress and distress. One of the things we really need to give ourselves credit for in the journalism industry is we are generally a resilient, strong, passionate, compassionate group of people. We are not necessarily very good at admitting vulnerability where it does exist, but generally we're not all kind of walking around with mental illness, but we are potentially all exposed to stressors such as anxiety, uncertainty and potentially moral injury when we're doing work, which really does impact on our emotional core. Of course, it's not easy talking about mental health in the news industry, Hannah. In fact, it's become something of a taboo subject. Why do you think that is? I think it's a couple of things that really at the moment are specifically important to mention when we're talking about the taboos around mental health in the news industry. And I would say that the conversation has got better in the last decade or so. One thing I'd say, one reason I'd say, particularly at the moment, is that people are really worried that admitting vulnerability is going to have an impact on their career prospects. And if you look at that within the context of COVID-19, where people have been furloughed, where jobs have been cut, where ad revenues have dropped, that's a really worrying thing to admit to, right? People think that it makes them a liability. Now, if we think about those who are most vulnerable within our industry, um, they tend to have less of a voice to be able to talk about their experiences. And it may well be that those people are also more exposed to stressors which impact on their mental health too so I think that the other thing around our industry and it's something that people often don't really want to talk about is the fact that we are systemically and things are changing systemically though a white a educated a male industry and therefore there is a sense of us being a fairly macho in inverted commas industry too where it's not that cool to talk about vulnerability and where there have been role models and certainly in some of the news organisations where I've worked, there's been this sense of put up or shut up, you know, this or certain types of coping mechanisms that really aren't coping mechanisms. And if But if the managers do it, who are we to talk about, you know, mental health in a different way? So it's this drinking too much, these extramarital affairs, just just kind of aggressive behaviour which takes place, which becomes the norm. And where that is the norm and that is being modelled, in some instances, obviously not all of them, then that doesn't really set a kind of tone where people can feel safe to be able to say, I really can't manage with this or I'm really struggling today. And you touched on the, on the brilliant piece you did with Pointer earlier on. What was really striking throughout this piece was when you talk about the um, the crash that you had at Perugia and, and, and that, that sort of breakdown and your colleague had sort of seen the signs leading up to that. Of course, we're in a situation now where we're not in a we're not all in a physical capacity. We're in many ways working in virtual newsrooms. 
are there ways that we can kind of see the signs in one another when we're not in a physical capacity to do so yeah no that's a it's a great question and actually you know as you mentioned I, I talked about this moment in Perugia and actually it was a moment for which I picked myself up and I think only because my colleague was so well versed in working with journalists who had been through huge amounts of trauma did she note that I managed to it's not a great phrase to use but pull the wool over the eyes of other people for quite a long time before and afterwards you know but it was fabulous for somebody to to say to me are you okay Hannah and for me to be able to say actually you know what I'm really not okay and to be able to then communicate with them over a period of time about how I was helping myself and getting better from it but that's one of the issues at the moment that is a real challenge is understanding how can you support people remotely and how can you recognize um, situations where people perhaps aren't doing as well and there are a few things that can be done and I think proactively it's really important to find that balance where you're able to check in with people without feeling like you're inundating them but just checking in with them and really listening to a, to an answer when you ask how are you really listening it's not necessarily that you're listening and trying to fix but you are really listening to that answer so that's really important I think when you're having conversations with people as a lot of us are on things like zoom just be a little bit aware about how things are changing if they are changing with them um, if the person's not coping so well there may be some kind of non-verbal and verbal signs as well it might be to do with their appearance it might be to do with the tone of voice it might be to do with the things they're talking about which are related or perhaps not related to their work it might be the speed with which they're talking I think the key thing in this instance is the rapport that you build is so 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 important and that through all mental health conversations in newsrooms is really important too it goes back to having a strong relationship where somebody feels safe to be able to talk about their mental health distress and they don't feel like that's going to impact on their career it's about having that relationship with a person when you're working remotely now I understand it's not always possible particularly if you're for instance taking on new people during COVID where you've never actually physically been able to meet them that may be difficult but it's all about establishing a rapport and building a relationship of respect and empathy and really really taking the time to show people what's an offer in terms of communicating policies and workshops and training, showing people they're not alone and showing people that you care in a way that they don't feel overwhelmed but they also feel able to come forward and find somebody and it might not be you as a manager but it might be somebody else within the newsroom to talk about if they're not coping. When we're talking about mental health it's very difficult and probably unhelpful to separate our professional lives from our personal lives that doesn't mean we all need to go and talk about everything going on with our personal lives but it might be that there is stuff going on in our personal lives that is impacting on our ability to do our jobs as journalists and that's important to at least have in our understanding as colleagues and managers as well and then what if they are not okay genuinely what kind of support mechanisms are vital in in these kind of virtual um, worlds that we're kind of now in? You know, there's a really big spectrum of support and 
aspects that people need to consider. Now, not every single newsroom obviously has the resources that some of the world's biggest newsrooms have to put lots and lots of money into employee assistance programs, for instance, or 24-7 helplines, which some news organisations do, or peer-to-peer training or mental health first aiders. A lot of news organisations don't have that capacity. Um, Sometimes they have some of those on hand. And I think that the really important thing is communicating what is on hand. Where that is not on hand, obviously the majority of health agencies around the world, particularly in the UK, for instance, you know, there, there are different numbers that can be called when people are really not coping. And I think that it's also in a way incumbent on the news organisation to to recognise when people aren't coping. There's a responsibility on the individual as well. I recognise that. But that's a really hard thing to to navigate when somebody really does feel completely rotten and feels completely isolated you often don't feel able to go for help so you know there are as I say the health agency numbers and helplines that are out there and then there is stuff that news organizations can be doing and there's some very basic simple cost-effective low-cost stuff that organizations can do like having a set of guidelines in terms of if somebody is um, you know, feeling this way, what kind of help might they be able to access? And also just implementing this kind of sense of how are you, this sense of checking in with people as well. Um, and then also, I think that one of the things that's quite interesting that I've been thinking about for quite a long time in speaking with people is this sense that, you know, if there's a taboo that exists within our industry, perhaps there's also a sense of a taboo that exists within news organisations themselves. Maybe there isn't and maybe there is to talk about things more openly and I think if we were able to come together more as an industry and there are some great organizations like the Dart Center for instance that does brilliant work but as an industry-wide focus that could be something that really is worth some effort. Some really useful practical and and tangible takeaways there I feel. Uh, To kind of end on a really quite positive note here Hannah, Covid has at least given us a chance to reinvent the industry how can we now change journalism for the better in regards to um, supporting staff who are perhaps struggling with their with their mental health? I've seen some brilliant um, pieces of work, some brilliant suggestions and some really brilliant initiatives. Um, there was an article on journalism.co.uk just this week about um, the ways that stress management was being brought into conversations within the newsroom. We are now talking about this more openly. That's fantastic because actually it is something that, as we've discussed, it affects us in different ways, but nobody is unaffected by COVID-19. And all journalists have had to work and find different ways of working and different ways of connecting and collaborating and face different pressures as well. So I think that there's been a real sense of, you know, we're in this a little bit more together than perhaps we were in the past. There is still competition, but I think that in the areas where competition is not necessarily healthy, like in mental health, I think we're seeing more potential to collaborate. I think that 
positive sides of connectivity is we can have these conversations. I've been having conversations with colleagues in Asia about mental health and in Hawaii about mental health and, you know, all over the world about how people are coping. And there is a degree of kind of connectivity that's really helpful in that regard. I've seen more recognition that we're talking about this spectrum of things from stress and anxiety through to PTSD. And that's really important too, because that in itself can be quite isolating if people think, oh, well, you know, I've got anxiety and that doesn't count because it's not PTSD. Well, of course it counts. It's really important. And um, and so we're seeing managers too recognise that, which is brilliant. So I'm positive. You know, I'm positive about the way we're going and I'm positive about how we can work together to make our industry more healthy and more robust and hopefully more safe and open to people being able to talk about their experiences when they want to. Hannah, this has been so revealing and I just want to thank you for your kind of sharing your insights, your journey and a lot of the advice that you've given. So thank you so much for all of your time today. It's been a pleasure, Jacob. Thank you very much. So much to think about there. And I come back to this idea of framing mental health problems as an injury, as a key takeaway, something which has happened to you. It also underpins the need for self-preservation and support in times when we are perhaps more prone to being hurt than usual. There is so much which poses a threat at the moment. But the point is, they're all valid. We need to look after ourselves, communicate if we're struggling. But that is difficult without a culture of acceptance within our newsrooms. If you like what you heard today, you can check out all our other podcast episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. And if you'd like to feature as a guest, then I'd love to hear from you. Drop me an email on jacob at journalism.co.uk. But that's all from me. Thanks so much for listening. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Until next time.